You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 354 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. We want to take some time here at the start of this show to um, take a step back and take a breath and just kind of review where we are with Longstreet's big attack on the left or southern end of the Union line as it played out on the afternoon and early evening of Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. As you may have noticed, we've kind of been making our way from south to north as we look at Longstreet's attack on the Union left. So we've talked about Devil's Den, Little Round Top, and the Wheat Field. And next up will be the Peach Orchard. There have been a lot of moving pieces involved in this part of the battle so far, so we thought we'd do a quick flyover and look at the big picture again before we drop back down for a low and slow pass through the action at the Peach Orchard. On July 2nd, the second day of the battle, the action on the Union left was taking place because the Confederate commander Robert E. Lee had decided to renew his attacks on the Federals at Gettysburg after he had won a victory, but an incomplete one, on July 1st, the first day of the battle. On July 1st, Lee's Confederates had crushed two enemy corps at Gettysburg, but the rebel victory was incomplete because the Federals had been able to hold on to dominating defensive positions south of town. Robert E. Lee was committed to the offensive, though, and he decided to renew his attacks the following day, with the only question being where best to strike. And while Lee considered his options, George Meade, at the end of just his fourth day in command of the Army of the Potomac, arrived at Gettysburg, Meade had already ordered his forces to concentrate at the crossroads town, so late on July 1st, when he arrived on Cemetery Hill and received positive reports from the generals already present that Gettysburg was a good place to fight a battle, Meade famously replied, Well, I am glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it. Meade's decision to fight it out with Lee at Gettysburg virtually guaranteed that serious combat would take place on July 2nd. 
most of the Army of the Potomac would arrive by mid-morning that day, taking up a strong defensive position that stretched from Culp's Hill on the right and then curved around Cemetery Hill before running south along Cemetery Ridge toward Little Round Top on the Federal left. As the Yankees settled into this famous fishhook line of defense, Robert E. Lee, across the way, considered the best plan to drive them from it. Lee wanted to maintain the Army of Northern Virginia's hard-won initiative, and by renewing his attacks on July 2nd, he hoped for results more decisive than what had been gained the previous day. The plan that Lee ultimately settled on called for the main Confederate assault to be launched against the Federal left, using two divisions from Longstreet's Corps, Hood's Division and McClaw's Division, and they would be joined by a division from A.P. Hill's Corps. Those would be Richard Anderson's men, who had been kept out of the fight on July 1st. And while Longstreet attacked the Union left, joined by some of Hill's troops, Lee ordered his other corps commander, Dick Yule, to demonstrate against the Federal right and to convert this demonstration into an actual assault if the opportunity presented itself. Lee's plan was sound in theory, but was nevertheless based on a faulty understanding of the Federal position. And as a result, the Confederate attacks on the Union left weren't carried out the way Lee had hoped. In fact, most of the day on July 2nd would pass before Longstreet's men were even in position to launch the assault. And once they finally did arrive at the jumping-off point for the attack, they found the Federals occupying a much different position than had been anticipated. In what continues to rank as one of the battle's most enduring controversies, Union General Dan Sickles early that afternoon, and without authorization from Meade, advanced his third corps some three-quarters of a mile from the position he had been assigned to what he believed was better ground, along the Emmitsburg Road and around Farmer Joseph Sherfy's Peach Orchard. By doing so, Sickles both disrupted Lee's plans and also placed the entire Federal Army in jeopardy. By the time Meade discovered Sickles' reckless blunder, it was too late to correct it, because Longstreet's assault against the Union left was just then, finally, kicking off. Once the Confederate attack finally started, sometime after 4 p.m., a full 12 hours after daybreak, it ushered in some of the most intense and horrific combat of the Civil War. Over the next three and a half hours, the soldiers of 11 Confederate brigades, a total of 21,000 hard-fighting men from the divisions of Hood, McClaws, and Richard Anderson, pitched into the Union left and center like so many successive waves of an angry sea crashing on the shore. The battle spread like wildfire from Devil's Den and up the rocky slopes of Little Round Top through Rose's Wheatfield and Sherfy's Peach Orchard, and all the way north toward a small clump or copse of trees near the center of the Union position on Cemetery Ridge. Several times that day, the Union left and center seemed to teeter on the brink, 
with the fate of Meade's position at Gettysburg hanging in the proverbial balance. Sickles' Third Corps was mauled, as were portions of the Fifth and Second Corps sent in to restore the situation on the Federal left. But the Confederate gains would ultimately prove fleeting, as each of their attacks was either hindered by lack of support or thwarted by the timely arrival of federal reinforcements. James Longstreet later said his soldiers' efforts on July 2nd were, quote, the best three hours fighting done by any troops on any battlefield of the war, end quote. But really, we think the same could be said of all those engaged in the desperate struggle there at the southern end of the battlefield on that bloody Thursday, whether they wore blue or gray. In his book, Sickles at Gettysburg, Jim Hessler writes, quote, the Joseph Shurfee farm sat at the intersection of the Emmitsburg and Wheatfield Roads. Shurfee built the family's two-story brick farmhouse, still standing today at the intersection's northwest corner, in the early 1840s. Shurfee's farm was considered average size for the area, approximately 50 acres, and had several outbuildings on the property. Hessler continues, quote, Shurfee was typical of many local farmers who were required by the hard and rocky Pennsylvania soil to supplement their farming incomes. His occupation in the 1860 census was listed as fruit dealer rather than farmer. The fruit resulted from a peach orchard Shurfee owned and operated on his farm. A young peach orchard directly across the Emmitsburg Road that is, east from the farmhouse, had been planted in a six-acre lot the previous year. The trees were not yet producing fruit, unlike Shurfee's more mature four-acre lot directly at the Emmitsburg and Wheatfield Roads intersection. It was this mature lot that would forever become known as the Peach Orchard. And just a side note, but if you visit Gettysburg today, you'll find that this spot on the battlefield once again has the general look of the 1863 Shurfee Orchard, because happily, in 2008, dozens of peach trees were replanted there at the intersection of the Emmitsburg and Wheatfield Roads. Exactly. Pretty cool. Anyway, as you guys will recall... When, early that afternoon, Sickles had sent the two divisions of his corps forward to take up that new line, that line, in its final form, started near the buildings of the Kadori Farm on the Emmitsburg Road and ran southwest along the road for about a mile to the Shurfee Peach Orchard. From the Peach Orchard, Sickles' line bent back at almost a 90-degree angle running southeastward across an open field down a rocky wooded hillside to the valley of the West Fork of Plum Run, across the Rose Wheat Field, then up Houck's Ridge and along the ridge to where it ended in the jumbled pile of boulders known as Devil's Den. And where the ridge ended, so did Sickles' line, up in the air, as they say. 
In the same way, the other end of Sickle's line, up near the Kadori farm, was equally in the air, hanging out in the middle of a wide, open field some half a mile from the left of the second corps, with which Sickle's corps was supposed to connect. The line was twice as long as the one Meade had assigned for the third corps, and about twice as long as Sickle's men could reasonably hold. That wasn't good, of course, but it was, wasn't only that that was cause for concern. Because, you see, at the Peach Orchard, Sickle's line also formed a salient where it bent back at almost a 90-degree angle to follow the Wheatfield Road. And very simply, a salient is bad because it projects outward into enemy territory and so can be attacked by the enemy from more than one side. Here at Gettysburg, the Federal troops holding the Peach Orchard salient were vulnerable to attack from two directions, from the west and south. Sickles' two divisions were led by David Bell Burney and Andrew Humphreys. Burney positioned the men of his division first, from down at Devil's Den up to the Peach Orchard. The men of Ward's brigade held Devil's Den, De Trobriand's brigade held the wheat field, and the soldiers of Burney's final brigade, Pennsylvanians commanded by Brigadier General Charles Graham, took up positions at the Peach Orchard, facing both to the south and west. After the men of Burney's division settled into their positions, Sickles next ordered Andrew Humphreys' troops forward to the Emmitsburg Road. Humphreys aligned two of his brigades in a line that extended north along the roadway. On his left, and connecting to the right of Graham's line, north of the Peach Orchard, near the Trossel Farm Lane, were the soldiers of Colonel William Brewster's Excelsior Brigade. Brigadier General Joseph Carr positioned the men of his brigade to the right of Brewster, with his line extending to a point a few hundred yards south of the Nicholas Cadori House and Barn. The regiments of Humphrey's 3rd Brigade, under Colonel George Burling, designated as the Corps Reserve, had already been parceled out to fill gaps in the 3rd Corps line, with most of them sent over to Burney. As we said before, Sickles, to his dying day, justified his decision to abandon his designated position and advance his men forward to a new line without orders, and without even notifying the army commander, by explaining, quote, I took up that line because it enabled me to hold commanding ground, which, if the enemy had been allowed to take it, as they would have taken it if I had not occupied it in force, would have rendered our position on the left untenable, and in my judgment, would have turned the fortunes of the day hopelessly against us. And so, there was nothing sinister or villainous about Sickles' boneheaded decision. He simply did what he thought was best. However, despite his best intentions, by advancing his men, Sickles imperiled the rest of the Union line, placing his own corps and the rest of the Army of the Potomac in serious jeopardy. As we said, when George Meade discovered that the Third Corps was entirely out of position, it was too late to correct Sickles' mistake, because by that time, Longstreet's attack on the Union left was just then finally kicking off. 
It was too late to put the third corps where it should have been. The rebels were upon them, and they would just have to fight it out as best they could, even as Meade gave urgent orders for the second and fifth corps to support Sickles and attempt to shore up the suddenly shaky Union left. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In previous episodes, our discussion about the fierce combat on the Union left so far can really be boiled down to Tracy's last point that when George Meade discovered that the Third Corps was entirely out of position, it was too late to correct Sickles' mistake, because by that time, Longstreet's attack on the Union left was just then finally kicking off. It was too late to put the Third Corps where it should have been because the rebels were upon them, and they would just have to fight it out as best they could where they were, even as units from both the Second and Fifth Corps moved to support Sickles and attempt to shore up the suddenly shaky Union left. And, in a nutshell, that's what was happening on the federal side of the lines. The Third Corps was fighting for its very life, while Second and Fifth Corps units scrambled to back them up and restore the integrity of the Union left. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side of the lines, as the fighting raged at Devil's Den, on Little Round Top, and in the wheat field, the relentlessly attacking rebels were striving urgently for a breakthrough. As brigade after brigade of Longstreet's troops was fed into the battle, striking hammer blow after hammer blow against the Federal positions, each assault seemed to carry within it the potential to be the one— that is, the possibility that it might be the one to tip the balance and score the decisive breakthrough that was needed to smash the Union line. The revised Confederate attack plan had called for Hood's division to kick off the assault. Forming up to the right of McClaw's division, 
Hood had stacked up his men with two brigades in front and two in support. Evander Law's exhausted and thoroughly parched Alabamans formed the right of Hood's front line, while Jerome Robertson's Texas and Arkansan troops formed up to the left of Law, with their line stretching north toward McClaw's right flank. Henry Rock Benning lined up his Georgia brigade roughly 200 yards behind Law's Alabamans, while George Tig Anderson's brigade of Georgians went into position to the left of Benning, behind Robertson's Texans and Arkansans. As y'all know, late that afternoon, well after four o'clock, Law's and Robertson's men moved out first, kicking off Longstreet's assault on the Union left, while behind them advanced Hood's rear brigades under Benning and Tyke Anderson. As enemy shells crashed into the advancing Confederate ranks, among the first to be struck down was Hood himself. He was carried to the rear out of the fight, and his guiding hand would be missed as the men of his division attacked Devil's Den, Little Round Top, and the wheat field. It wasn't until sometime around 5.30 and all of Hood's brigades had been committed, slugging it out with various 3rd and 5th Corps units at Devil's Den on Little Round Top and in the wheat field, that James Longstreet decided the time had come to unleash Lafayette McClaw's division. We've already talked about how Kershaw's South Carolinians, on the right of McClaw's front line, advanced first, sweeping forward in parade ground precision while the Georgians of Semmes' brigade moved out behind them in support. As y'all know, as they advanced directly toward the formidable Union gun line that had been wheeled into position along the Wheatfield Road in an attempt to shore up the southern flank of the Peach Orchard salient, Kershaw's left wing met with disaster after a tragic miscommunication sent them veering away from the enemy cannon, exposing their left flank to the devastating blast of Federal artillery fire. As Kershaw's left wing met with disaster in front of the Union gun line, and as Kershaw's right wing and Sem's Georgians joined the battle raging for Stony Hill in the wheat field, Joseph Kershaw had expected that the men of Barksdale's brigade to his left would also be moving forward against the Federals holding the peach orchard. That this didn't happen was through no fault of 41-year-old Brigadier General William Barksdale, who was more than eager to join the fray. Hearing the action unfold to the south of his position as Confederate troops attacked Devil's Den and Little Round Top and the Wheat Field, and as, just to his right, Kershaw's men were catching hell in front of the Union gun line along the Wheatfield Road, Barksdale paced impatiently, awaiting his orders to advance and join the fight. Barksdale's four Mississippi regiments, totaling some 1,600 men, had been among the first of Longstreet's troops to deploy that afternoon, and had for far too long been suffering from shot and shell fired from enemy cannon posted just six to seven hundred yards to their front. At one point, spotting Longstreet, the restless Barksdale called out, I wish you would let me go in, General. I will take that battery in five minutes. Old Pete replied, Wait a little. 
We are all going in presently. Finally, just minutes before 6 p.m., the moment at last arrived, and Barksdale was ordered to advance. Unleashed at last, William Barksdale and his Mississippians emerged from the trees along Seminary Ridge, piercing the air with the rebel yell, and rushed straight ahead toward the peach orchard, embarking on what would turn out to be one of the most epic brigade charges of the Civil War. With today being Memorial Day 2021, rather than our usual closing, we'd like to take a few minutes at the end of this episode to say a few words that might perhaps be appropriate to share on this special day. We've been thinking a lot about death and loss lately. Uh, Since the release of the last episode, we lost a friend of ours, Vic, after a long struggle with ALS. Vic was not only a friend, but a big fan of the podcast. He was always so supportive of our efforts with the show. In fact, Vic had just let us know recently that he was still enjoying listening to the podcast. And it saddens us to think that he won't be around as we continue to make our way through the story of the Battle of Gettysburg and on through the rest of the war and Reconstruction. And we're mindful that there has also been so much loss this past year because of the COVID crisis as the country and the entire world struggled with how to continue on with everyday life in the midst of the pandemic. This past year, it seems like there has hardly been a family that has remained untouched by the crisis in one way or another. Just last week, Rich's family held a memorial service back in Pennsylvania for his uncle, who died recently from COVID-related complications. Memorial Day, of course, is a time set aside to remember and honor those who have died while serving in our nation's armed forces. But on this Memorial Day, when we as a country, as a global community, have experienced so much loss, so much death, it seems appropriate to reflect on how death or at least the specter of sickness and death, has touched so many of our lives in the past year. Here with the podcast, we're always aware, as we work our way through the stories of these battles, and especially as we share first-person accounts from participants, we're always aware that we're talking about the lives of real people, people who lived through the brutal, violent experience of war. What has come across so clearly to us is that they were people just like you and me, with faces and names, people who were afraid, who had hopes and dreams, and many of their lives were cut short by death on the battlefield or by illness or disease, while others went home with wounds, both physical hurts and emotional pain from which they suffered for the rest of their days. And for every death on the battlefield, there was, more often than not, someone back home who deeply mourned the loss of that person, that loved one. Parents who lost a son, wives who lost a husband, 
children who lost a father. By recent estimates, more than 700,000 soldiers lost their lives in the Civil War. And we will sneak in a book recommendation here and suggest you might check out This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War by Drew Gilpin Faust. In that book, she reveals the ways that death on such a massive scale changed not only individual lives, but the life of the nation. Here in the U.S., we've hopefully seen the worst of the pandemic, and while the human capacity for resilience is amazing, and the desire to just, quote, unquote, get back to normal is certainly understandable, it astonishes us that it seems the vast majority of Americans are willing to do so with so little reflection on how death on such a massive scale, with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dead, has changed not only individual lives, but the life of our nation. We won't venture too far down that path here, since many of you let us know when you think we stray too far away from Civil War-related topics, and you apparently don't like to be reminded of what's going on in the world we live in today when you listen to a podcast about the past. Uh, yeah, so much we'd like to say about that. But anyway, we'll simply say that perhaps by looking back at how the Civil War generation dealt with death and loss on a massive scale, it could just maybe provide us with lessons today as we find ourselves emerging from the hopefully worst of the pandemic, but coming out of it having lost almost 600,000 of our fellow Americans along the way. There's much to learn from how we as a nation have dealt with crises in the past, even in the very recent past. And we think it's altogether fitting and proper on this Memorial Day that we take the time to reflect on what we've learned during those difficult stretches. And it's our prayer that the lessons we learn from the past, even the recent past, would lead us all into a future where the mess of our humanity and history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, can be stories and signposts that point us forward to a better tomorrow for all people.